When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Friday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. Doug Lane Maurice, Nathan Baird, and Stephen Means. And the plan is that we're going to work through all of the interviews that we did on Wednesday. And we don't want to dump everything on you right away because I, I think it's a good opportunity, guys, to, you know, absorb where these coaches are, where these position rooms are. And so on the Thursday pod, we talked about some offensive line stuff with Justin Fry. We talked about some quarterback stuff with Corey Dennis. And so, you know, we'll work through some other stuff. We talked about the play calling with Brian Hartline and Ryan Day. But on this podcast, we're going to focus on, I think, Tony Alford in the running backs room and uh, Keenan Bailey joining the staff in a a full-time way as the new tight ends coach. And Nathan, I know You've been working on the story there. And then next week, we'll plan to get a lot more in all the defensive stuff. So we're not in a hurry. You know, I mean, it's we want to analyze it. We want to tell you guys what was said, and then we want to interpret it for you. So that's the plan. But I do want to start with something that's related to that, but not exactly that. And that's what Ryan Day said on Wednesday about the Marvin Harrison Jr. overturned targeting call in the Georgia game, Nathan. and. I think this was something that Ryan Day had holstered and was debating, I think, whether he wanted to go there or not. And he did not go there on his own. He went he went there with a uh, nice shove by Steve Hellwagon of Bucknuts, who was like, let's talk about this. You know, I'm trying, Steve was saying, like, I try, I'm trying to get an answer of, like, how the decision was made and what what's the rule supposed to be on targeting in that situation. And and it's always one of those, Ryan turned to Jerry Emig, the sports information director, and was like, are we going here? Like, is this, is this okay? And Jerry was like, hmm, sure. So he talked about it, Nathan, and he talked about the idea there's opinion and there's fact. And the fact is, Ryan Day said he made a bunch of calls because he was trying to figure out what is the letter of the law with targeting. And he was trying to figure out why it was interpreted the way it was, which was called on the field and then picked up no foul on the play that knocked Marvin Harrison out of the game. 
And that turned into a fourth down situation then where Ohio State wound up kicking a field goal. If there had been a penalty, they would have had a first down in the red zone and had a very at least decent chance at scoring a touchdown there. And the thing that was, well, let's talk about that first because there's another fact, if you want to throw it in there, that I found interesting that wasn't maybe exactly what we had heard before. So what did you think of Ryan Day even going there, Nathan? Well, I think I I understand why he wants to get a – complete answer on it um i'm not sure that i would have been uh as inspired by the same the, the way he it was working logically for him he, he the way he said it was well our medical people told me later that he lost consciousness which is not what Mar- marvin harrison actually had told us he hadn't lost consciousness in the moment of the play that night but so he had just had a tangent just this tangentize there right that's conflicting right. information. Yeah. Right. But would Marvin and, Harrison remember being unconscious if he actually was unconscious? And and who knows what he wants to admit or say there in the locker room right after the game. And and he just got yeah had a head injury. So um, I, I, there's a lot of uh, gray area there that it's it's that's why. These well, but I don't think there different. is gray area anymore. There's the gray area is solved. It's black and white now. Marvin Harrison Jr. lost consciousness. I, the medical yeah, staff meant, said that and told Ryan Day. Right. I just meant that I don't think Marvin Harrison was like trying to intentionally mislead us in some nefarious way. No, no, no. But let's, but let's deal with this fact. Let's deal with this fact now since we did bring it up. I don't know that that is a definitive indication of targeting, which I think is what you're about to talk about, Nathan. But it is a fact. Is it not a fact that contributes to the discussion in some way, Nathan? And again, it is contrary to what we thought. It Like you watched it and you thought it. I thought in the moment he yeah. got knocked out. Mm-hmm. And then Marvin said, no, I didn't. And now Ryan Day is saying, yeah, I did. So for the record, that has to go on the record because this discussion is going to go on in Ohio State history. For the record, Marvin Harrison Jr. lost consciousness. And is that not a part of the discussion, Nathan? When we were watching the immediate replay of that play from the press box, you and I sitting next to each other, you were pointing out, hey, he's doing like the fencing People on the podcast can't see me, but like, you know, that thing that people, the players do that, like where there's that, that little weird hand motion. And so that contributed to us watching from hundreds and hundreds of feet away, thinking that there may have been a concussion there. And I, part of the narrative right after the game, too, was um, when if, if when Marvin says, well, I didn't even really lose consciousness or whatever, then that sort of swung the impetus back on the like why isn't the why is the metal staff being over medical staff not letting him play i think there was some of that discussion out there so i thought that was an important thing to clear up but yes i was going to say that i've talked to many athletes including football players wearing helmets who will tell you that getting hit even sometimes getting hit in the head while playing football is often not as painful as the contact with the ground and the ground causes a lot of concussions, like smacking the back of your head on the ground causes a lot of concussions. We've seen that in the NFL and college football all the time. So that was all I was going to say was that logic doesn't necessarily add up to me that because a guy was concussed necessarily meant that that made it more targeting. But I understand in, in Ryan Day's um, in, in just it was such a pivotal play. And this has been a thing in Ohio State history now, going back to the Sean Wade play against Trevor Lawrence in 2019. Um, going back to Jack um, Sawyer was uh, kicked out of the or disqualified 
from the Rose Bowl last year for a targeting call. And like they keep coming up. And I don't think there's anything out there that Ohio State is like being <laughs> getting the short end of this necessarily by by someone's intent. But I there like every program, I think there is still some cloudiness here as to what const what is the letter of the law, what constitutes targeting, and so anyway, that at least that's where we get in terms of what what got him to make the call calls. So Stephen Ryan, Ryan Day's outlining that he talked to Big Ten officials. He talked to Bill Carrillo, who's the the head of the Big Ten officials, and talked about that. And then he went and talked to the head of the Pac-12 officials because that was a Pac-12 crew that worked that game. Because whenever you have two teams matching up in a situation like that, they make sure it's a neutral crew. They're not going to use a Big Ten crew or an SEC crew for something like that. Stephen, were you surprised that Ryan Day pursued it? to that end when he was explaining that that that's the process he went through when he got back to Columbus what did you think of it I'm not shocked that he pursued it I am a little shocked that maybe he went through that many channels which even the way he was explaining it made it seem like he was shocked he had to go through that many channels to find an answer it didn't seem like he was able to find an answer the first place he went uh, but no I, I, I'm not shocked that he decided to go this route with it that's a that's Arguably his best player getting knocked out at a premium time in the game with and the call isn't something he agreed with. That it's not coaches do that all the time. But it didn't seem like a smooth alley for him to find an answer. And I do think that's a little bit alarming. Regardless of if Marvin Harrison got knocked unconscious or not, that's a bit a pivotal play in a football game. And it shouldn't take multiple channels for a head coach to figure out, you know, what the explanation is for it, even if he gets the explanation and still doesn't like the answer he gets. So I know there is some frustration around Ohio State. I, I knew Ohio State was frustrated about this, and I thought um, Ohio State might even – so we had not talked, Nathan, right? We had not talked to anybody with Ohio State since being at the Peach Bowl. We'd had no official press conferences, right, right. 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 So uh, I thought there was a time when they were pretty hot about this, and I thought maybe they'd even talk about it before we did here um, on the first day of February. And then and then he again, credit to Steve. He wasn't like it wasn't like Ryan Day opened the, the signing day news conference. It's a signing day news conference for no signing. So it's not really a signing day news conference, mm-hmm. but credit to Ohio State. They didn't say, ah, we didn't sign anybody. Don't bother. It was like Let's check in. It that's why the old signing day was always great. It was like a good check. It's like a month after the season ends. Let's check in. We don't want to not talk to you between the end of the season and spring football, which starts in the second week in March. So let's check in. It's a great check-in time. Ryan Day didn't have a plan to come in and say, All right, I gotta get this off my chest. And then, but then he was asked about it right at the end, and then he did go there. I guess that's he's not doing it for show, right, Nathan? I mean I would imagine Ohio State fans were glad to hear that. Hey, like our coach is trying to stand up for our program and get answers. But what do you think is the goal there? Because I know there's some Ohio State frustration around the idea, and it's it's not apples and oranges, Nathan, but in the Clemson loss when in 2019 when Sean Wade gets targeting, right, and gets kicked out of that game, and that is kind of a, a pivotal play in that game, and now 
Here's a here's a targeting that gets picked up in another close semifinal loss. And both those go against Ohio State. And they're not the same thing. And they're not the same type of plays. And it doesn't mean Sean Wade didn't lower his head and lead with the crown of his helmet. But one of the things is the end result. And again, as we know, targeting is not only to protect the player being targeted, it's to protect the targeter because they don't want you to lower your head, lead with the crown of your helmet, and give yourself a serious neck injury, right? So we understand that. I do get the frustration, Nathan, of Ohio State had a targeting that stood and like Trevor Lawrence was fine. Like it was like, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. And, and Ohio State has a targeting that gets picked up and the player who got not targeted was lost for the whole game. And so by results, it's like, which play is more serious? Which play is more dangerous? Which play has more of an effect on the human body and brain? But it's also not a results-oriented penalty. It's an action-oriented penalty. But I understand the confusion. I understand the frustration. And I think it probably was therapeutic at the very least for Ryan Day to make those calls and get an explanation. I think it's fair to get people, again, people talk about this all the time. Players and coaches have to answer on the record for their actions in a game. We make them. And then sometimes there could be a pool report, hey, go talk to the refs. For a ref to have to explain it, right or wrong, to the head coach who was affected, I think that's totally fair. But is there an end game, do you think, here, Nathan? Like, what in the end? Is it just a guy getting some stuff off his chest? Or do you think there's value to the targeting discussion that could come from conversations like this? Oh, I think there's definitely value to the targeting discussion. And, and we should also say the, the, the big variable difference, too, between Sean Wade and Marvin Harrison Jr. was on one play, you've got a guy going up, elevating. It's a huge variable to introduce into what eventually happens on the play. And that's why it's difficult to look at the end result as opposed to the action, as you're saying. But I think there have to be more conversations about the action involved with the targeting call, because you know the explanation Ryan Day got was that it was contact to the shoulder and not to the head or the neck. The, the letter of the law says there has, to, it, I think it actually just says contact to the head or neck area. But you know what's right next to your head and your neck? Your shoulder. And it's a very confusing thing for players, for coaches, for fans, I know, because every time one of these happens, you watch social media kind of explode. And there's other little factors that go into it that it's, it's no matter where you're being contacted, is it the motion of the defensive player going up into it? It's it the intent of writing the law, writing the rule, I think was uh, legitimately a good one. Like you're saying, you're trying to protect players on both sides. You're trying to change the way you're trying to take a dangerous play out of the game. And it wasn't being trained out of the game. So they felt like they had to legislate it out of the game for lack of a better term, but it really needs some more clarity in the way that it's written and the, the way that it's called, because I don't think it is working even if it's cleaning up the game, even if it is re- reducing the number of head injuries, and I don't know what data there would be out there about that, uh, the fact that it is starting to, it, it's so uh, misinterpreted or misunderstood that it starts to call into question the integrity of the outcome of games, then I don't think that's a good thing for the sport. Yeah, because there's also an element of it that is a defenseless player, 
uh, doing it towards a defenseless player. And you're probably looking at Marvin Harrison, looking at a ball floating in the sky that CJ Stroud threw 25 feet in the air. And so he has no idea the guy's coming. That would constitute a defenseless player that, you know, that the Georgia defender lunged. I can't remember his name right now. That would constitute that, but it doesn't constitute it under, it wasn't the crown of his head and he didn't, and then he didn't attack his neck or his, or his head. So it's like, it, there's too many times where a play, whether it's targeting, call targeting or not, where when we're having this discussion, it feels like it's never every piece of the law that a guy checked off when he does or doesn't get called for targeting. It may be a piece here or a piece there where, okay, George is probably happy that it wasn't targeting. They probably think it's not targeting, and they might be right about that, but Ohio State might be mad that it was targeting, and they might be right about it too because it's still it's bits and pieces and never as clear as night and day as maybe a lot of other, other penalties are sometimes. Nathan, what you said about like they couldn't train it out of the game, so they're trying to penalize or legislate it out of the game. I think Ohio State would say, exactly, you did, and then you picked up the flag. That's the part of it is like you were – penalizing somebody for doing something that we want out of the game. Because from a player safety standpoint, Marvin Harrison Jr. lost consciousness. We don't want that to happen. And I do think the part, Stephen, that you're talking about, there is there are different parts of this. When you talk about like lining a guy up, that Georgia defender came from quite a ways mm-hmm. to, to make that hit. And it wasn't exactly within like the, I don't know. It wasn't like the normal course of play where like Sean Wade just like came on a blitz and then lowered his yeah. head, right? But it was more in the flow of something. You you really are, I think you're trying to stop players from lighting guys up, which is part of this, Nathan. And like Marvin Harrison Jr. got lit up there and it was high. He didn't hit him in the chest. He didn't hit him. He didn't wrap him up around the waist. So it was high, and now you're you're trying to figure out. Well, is it a little more shoulder? Is it a little? Is it does it qualify as head or neck area? I I understand the frustration, and and this is a conversation. Of course, as usual, I never did anything with. I never wrote. But I talked to Bill Carrillo at Big Ten Media Days in July for half an hour or forty minutes, and a lot of it was about targeting. And a lot of it was about his idea that you can't have levels of targeting because it either is or it isn't. And you can't really legislate intent. You can only legislate the outcome. It's like, did you do the thing by the parameters? But there, it's hard because I think, and I can get on a societal rant. I think at the moment we in society legislate outcome without considering intent a lot. It's like, what'd you do? And it's like, well, I did it by accident versus I did it with like anger and hatred in my heart. Right. And people can do the exact same thing. And a lot of times you're like, we're like, well, you did it. And of course you can apologize and that kind of thing. But I do think like in life intent matters a lot. And I would be in favor of some kind of intent interpretation as part of this, Nathan. And one of the discussions with Bill Carrillo is like, can you have layers of targeting? Can you have one that's a penalty without kicking a guy out, right? Can you do various things? People have suggested that with pass interference. Can you have like a smaller pass interference and a bigger pass interference? And he was sort of saying like, once you go down that road, you don't know what's in a player's head when he's committing an act, right? How can we penalize based on our presumed intent? 
But I, I think I would be in favor of two layers of targeting, and that's not where they are right now. And I do think maybe you would get to a world where, okay, there's there's five parts of targeting. If you check every box, man, you're out of here. That is like, you can't be doing that stuff. But if you check three of the boxes and it's a bad outcome and you can't only judge it on outcome, but it's like, this was bad, but maybe your intent wasn't there. It's going to be a five or a 10 or a 15 yard penalty or a first down for the other team, but you're not getting knocked out of the game or whatever. It's more like just like a regular personal foul. I think you could find some area there to work with the targeting rule. And so now we're going back to a general discussion, but I think this specific example is part of it because I do think there were some factors that did, that were part of it, Nathan, on this play. They kind of lined him up and it's on some level, it's a football play. There's a ball in the air. It's going to be a touchdown possibly if you don't break it up. It's not like he lined him up to try to hurt him, but he did line him up in a way that I think people don't want in football. If you're going to do that, try to go low then. I don't know, Nathan. I, I do wonder if there could be something that comes from this. Could this be teaching tape that leads to a discussion of we're going to – it's not that the Marvin Harrison Jr. play changes targeting forever, but I don't know. Could it be a point of discussion? You know, We've had this conversation on the pod before, um, You know, definitely back to the Sean Wade days and I think since then. And I'm, I'm much more on the Bill Carrillo side of this. I think one of the biggest – issues probably the single biggest issue with targeting is the name that they gave it because that implies some kind of intent that implies that it's more like a personal foul penalty or an unnecessary roughness when the only intent that matters is whether or not you intended to lower your head for any reason that's the only intent that matters because you said earlier in this discussion it's about protecting the defensive player as much as it's about protecting the offensive player so my proposal has always been that they should uh, either now or like fire up the flex capacitor and go back in time and rename the penalty sloppy, dangerous tackling form. Because I think players, um, as much as they don't like getting called for tackling, it would like hit them in the feels a little bit if they were on national TV called out for sloppy, dangerous tackling form. And that was, I think that would get to where they want. Oh, I know it's a, hand, it's a mouthful. It's not that much more than unnecessary roughness or improper touch and whatever the other penalties are. Uh, but I think it would get to the point syllables. of what they're, it would, it would better hit what they're trying to get out of the game. It would better hit what they're trying to get out of the game. And the other thing to remember on this play, I know why it is a, a sore spot for Ohio state fans and the Ohio state coaching staff and Marvin Harrison jr. Probably most of all, but the Official who was watching the game that night, watched the replay on the broadcast. I believe he said, no, I don't think that should be targeting. I think that's that's a good, that's a clean hit. It's, you know, it's a, it's a rough hit, but football is a rough sport. And you think that he thought that was a clean hit within the rules. And I think if that play had stood and the defender had been ejected, I think that Georgia fans might be, or Georgia media might be having a podcast about how pivotal that play was and how it was a very close judgment call that went against Georgia and they would be sore about it in this example. Not every example of targeting is like that, but I think this example would have been like that, that I think both fan, both fan bases, coaching staffs, whatever would have maybe um, had problems with the outcome, no matter which, which part of that call stood and any judgment call, that's sort of a danger that there is in sports. And once in a while, there's going to be those plays where there's no outcome. That's going to be so clear cut that it satisfies every interpretation. Unnecessary tackling. 
when you have unnecessary roughness. And the whole point of that is the players out of town, out of bounds already. Was it necessary for you to do that? And, Cause you can't measure intent cause you don't know, but sometimes a hard hit is necessary. I do in that situation, just to use some of the situations Ohio state's been in, it was probably necessary to hit Marvin Harrison that hard, regardless of the, the, the head being up and all that stuff. That's a whole other detail. But in that situation where you need to make sure a wide receiver doesn't catch the ball, it probably does need to be some level of a hard hit. So that would, in that situation, it probably deems it necessary. Let's take the James Skowski hit on Justin Fields. That type of hit wasn't necessary. And there have been multiple other examples during Skowski's career in games like that where he is literally spearheading a player in the ribs or something like that. That's not a necessary tackle. I, I do that maybe that's a better way to, to, to look at this because sometimes hard hits are necessary because you're trying to make a play. But how you go about that hard hit isn't always necessary. Plus it's just less syllables. So there's a guy named Brandon Adams who I've had on twice on the College Football Survivor Show who hosts a daily podcast about Georgia. I think he does a really good job. I think he's a really good podcast host. He, I think he just – I think it's – one of the closest things to Buckeye talk of like a daily podcast that really delves into a team in a hardcore way. So I really like what Brandon's done and you know, he serves his audience, but he had a tweet uh, on Wednesday after Ryan day said this, that he retweeted somebody from the Ohio state beat and said like Ryan days, Ryan day didn't have a great view of the play uh, because from his position standing on third base, or something. And it was like, he took a shot at Ryan day for, for the thing. So my, my question is this, I mean, this is, it's college football. You know, he's serving a Georgia audience. We serve an Ohio state audience. Is there a part of this that for, to the outside world is going to sound like Ohio state whining, Nathan? Sure. Like is Ryan day having a legitimate discussion about the health, safety and welfare of college football players and how we legislate and penalize things in our game and this is something, it's an ongoing discussion. We need to keep discussing it, discussing it, especially on, in a big play on the highest level. This is a great opportunity to do this. And also it really mattered for the game. And so I want an explanation. Or is it, ah, you lost your whining. How do you think people see it? I think there's going to be some people who see it that way. Sure. Um, that it's going to be like sort of a sore loser situation. And maybe that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe that's one reason why he was hesitant to talk about it. Because I think he wants to talk about it the right way, right? Like uh, that it's it's about interpretation and it's about, um, you know, clarifying the rule as more than it is about something that was taken away from Ohio State. Because he didn't really talk that much about the effect it had on the game. He was really just talking about what happened on the play and what interpretation he was told about. I think that was probably a smart way to talk about that. And it probably was a – there was at one time time – they were talking about having a press availability a couple of weeks ago to talk about any number of things. And we thought that was going to be one of them. And it was probably better for Ryan day and for Ohio state that they waited until they did. And he almost like, it was the last question of the press conference. He almost, it did, almost didn't come up at all uh, because so many of us had so many other things we wanted to ask him about for 45 minutes. Um, but like I said, I, I think that especially when, because when you look at that play, it isn't as clear cut as some other, plays uh steven brought up james skowski people might remember uh in the 2019 national championship game against lsu he got uh kicked mm-hmm. out for targeting and i think did he get did he get a targeting for the hit on fields in 2020 at the sugar bowl too 
Like he was kind yes. of a repeat offender for those things. And and, and some of them were, yeah. I thought, very obvious. And I still, to this day, say that Deshaun Wade was kind of textbook targeting too by letter of the law. So I think, that, like but what I said before, because this one wasn't as clear cut, certainly people can look at it and say, that it that it it's it's why are you bringing this up because it was kind of a bang bang play and I the one thing that does sort of bother me a little bit is bringing up it's a little bit of a dangerous road when you start bringing up well he our our medical people said he lost consciousness so doesn't that mean there was targeting because if if you trace it back and find out that actually happened because he smacked his head on the ground or his upper back or whatever then are we are we going to take out jumping by a receiver out of the game like there there is. Not that not that that slippery slope is actually going to happen, but you know what I'm saying. Like you can't, it can't be the result. It has to be the action. No, I, it makes me want to go look at it. I didn't. I think if he lost consciousness, it was from the hit. I don't think it was from hitting the ground because I thought yeah. he was maybe like out before he got to the ground. Yeah, I think it was from the hit, and I do think again we're talking about like what are the two things? And you, Nathan, you've always made a very good point on the targeting is really about protecting the defender. Like as much like, don't lower your head. Don't use the crown of your helmet. Don't spear guys. You are, you are just opening up the possibility of compressing your spine and having a very serious neck and spine injury. Don't do that. That's part of it. But isn't also part of it like on behalf of the defenseless player, Stephen? Like, don't go high. Yeah. Like, don't. We don't want guys making hits up in that area. Hit a guy in the chest and the waist and the thighs. Don't hit in the neck and the head. And so that is part of this here. We're talking about like, because I think in the end, it's like he maybe contacted the shoulder and the neck, like on the follow through or something. Like, I do think that's the part of it of if you said, I think if you lined up this play, Stephen, and said, do we want that in college football or not? We understand hard hits. We understand you've got to break up passes. But would you want a player Nathan, you were talking about like training it out of guys. Would you line up that Georgia play and say, yep, that's fine? Or would you line up that Georgia play and say, no, that's too high? We don't want guys going that high. You got to come down a little bit when you're trying to break up a play like that. That part of it of like, we don't want guys making hits that high on the defenseless player. That seems, that's the Ohio State side of things. That seems to be a mm-hmm. reasonable issue to me. And then now we're into, well, was it, 20% shoulder and 17% neck and 33% head or whatever. But I do think, Stephen, that's also part of what they're trying to get out by having a play like this, right? We want that type of play out of the game. Yeah, you want to keep the helmet to helmet the stuff as limited as humanly possible, especially when it comes to like how you go about tackling somebody. So, But even with that, using this, I don't know, this is a textbook play that would create a conversation in referee school. Because it's 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 the hit. It, I don't think the 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 hard hit part of it. Yeah, you kind of do want that in football because that's part of football. Now, was he too high on the high hard hit? All these extra variables that come into it. That's maybe where the discussion lies. But a hard hit in general, yeah, you do still want that to be part of football because that's what makes it entertaining in some way or fashion. And to the whining point of this. I mean, part of that is because it's been a month now, and if and unfortunately we haven't talked today. Over the past month, if we'd have had this exact conversation with Ryan, as Nathan mentioned, we were supposed to maybe get them two or three weeks ago. Had we gotten them two weeks ago and this question was asked and they answered it, it's not as far removed from it to where it seems like, oh, why is it still on your head? Move on. So that I think it's, that's more of the reason why people are calling it whining because 
I mean, we're a month from now. Get over it. So I just watched it again. For the record, the injury occurred from the hit. It's not at all from hitting the ground. It's not By like the his way, head and their helmets, up. Their helmets hit. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess he hit his shoulder first, but their helmets did hit, Nathan. Like, that's part of it is like, I guess yeah. there was shoulder contact first, but there is certainly non-incidental. He's high. It's, I think there's non-incidental helmet-to-helmet contact as part of the follow-through. That begins maybe with the hit to the shoulder, but there's also helmet to helmet, and it is high, and the and the the injury occurs from the hit, not from the ground. So I, again, I don't think it's I don't think it's cut and dry. No way is that targeting, because it's high, and his helmet does get hit. But and I think again, I think the thing that grates on Ohio State is they picked it up. You called it one way, and then you changed your mind. That's the like. That's, that's what you change your mind on. I think that's if they had never called it. I think it's a different discussion. It's where I sympathize with Ohio State because the thing that you were saying, like, well, looking at that, you're not dismissing that it should could have maybe been targeting or that you, whatever, however you just phrased it. But also, you're not saying it's definitely targeting. So I would understand if they hadn't called it at all. I think Ohio State would look at it differently. It would actually be less controversial from Ohio State standpoint. But the fact that they called it and then looked at that replay and then are trying to say, as you just did, um, by looking at the replay, now you're instead coming out and saying it's definitely not targeting. Like, are you saying that be are is are they are the officials saying that because when they looked at it, they weren't sure whether or not it was, so that's why they picked it up. I think that's the tough thing for Ohio State. But but even again, going back to the the Sean Wade example, one of the things that I know Ohio State fans were were sore about there, and and Ryan Day himself, I believe, brought it up after that game, and he has in other instances of targeting. Is that sometimes your motion starts, and then the opposing player does something, and that that somehow affects the targeting call, whether or not it happens. Um, usually, that's that will end up being why the flag is thrown because of the contact that happens as a result of things that that started um, separate from each other and just connected there. But you could argue the Georgia fans could argue the same thing on this play a little bit too, right? You got a guy in the air, so a guy starts his motion, but then now that guy's coming down. Like there's, it, there are some some gray areas here that that make it difficult. So I, I I totally understand where people are coming from on this. I think that the thing that makes Ohio State the most frustrated is that the is that the flag was thrown, and that's what makes it I think a little bit of a less of a a a, a the, the whiner factor, right? That they're not saying they're not going back to a play that wasn't called at all and saying it was they're saying this play was called and then on replay it was picked up and and they're trying to get to a better explanation of why that happened. Yeah, he got hit in the head. I don't mm-hmm. like, I think he got hit in the shoulder first, but he also got hit in the head second. So I don't have a rule book in front of me. I think it's it's an ongoing discussion. I don't think and I think we've always said this. And Nathan, you've just been you've been on the ball on this from the jump of like we're trying to protect players. People love to complain about the calls that are made against their team. Most of the complaints about targeting are my team got called for targeting, and I, actually, that's I can't I can't I can't stop this discussion. Are not most of the complaints around targeting? My defensive player got called for targeting and got kicked out, and I thought that was too much. Either the rule needs to be changed so you're not kicking a guy out, or the guy ducked right into it. He couldn't do anything else. There's not intent there, but we're not measuring intent. 
why are we kicking guys out of the game and having these big-time penalties when you kind of couldn't help it? That's usually the targeting complaint. There are, it doesn't seem like that there are not, there aren't as many targeting complaints that are, this was targeting and you didn't call it, which is right. Isn't that right? Yeah. Like that, this discussion is a little bit different. This is not usually how we discuss this. Yeah. It's usually you lost a key player in a key moment and then you just don't have them the rest of the game for something that it, it seems like a stark punishment which is where I'm going to go full Nathan Bear with that and say, I agree with the stark punishment. Now, I do think they found middle ground, especially post-Sean Wade, and they don't have to do the whole walk of shame and sit in the locker room by themselves and watch it on the TV. They can still sit on the sideline. I think that's the middle ground, though, because you're still trying to protect players, which means I think with this situation, it has to be the most extreme penalty. You can't play anymore because you're trying to break habits, and the best way to break habits is to take something away from somebody. Now, does it, it, it is it fair all the time if you want to say there's probably levels of targeting based off intent and the type of hit and all that stuff? Sure. But when you're trying to break a habit that's been a part of a sport for 50, 60, 70 years, I think sometimes the penalty has to be extreme, even if it seems like it's going to be annoying at times because there are plenty of instances on a week-by-week basis where a guy gets kicked out of a game. And depending on when it happens, you might miss – the whole second half of that game, and you might also miss the whole first half of a week later with a game that has nothing to do with it. Also, it kind of looks like targeting when you watch it, Nathan. Like, before you slow it down, I, I do think, like, when you watch it, two seconds, you watch it. Where the guy comes from, the way Marvin Marvin's neck and head snaps after contact, that it's high, and that it appears to be helmet to helmet. I think it looks like targeting. Which is also part of it too. Now, we, just because uh, it looks like targeting doesn't mean it is targeting, but I think it looks like it. Is this almost a whole different discussion in itself? I, have we got more? Well, I think everybody would agree with this. I think we've gone a little too far left with the review because, to your point, when you just watch it like a normal human being, it looks like targeting. But when you slow it down, decibel by decibel by decibel by de- decibel by decibel, then you can look at, oh wait, he actually hit his shoulder and then he moved up to his head. Where it's like, dude. When you just look at that, we don't look at things in slow motion. So why are we breaking every little part down of a video when if but, you just looked at it like a normal human being, it can, and this, this is not just directed towards this thing exactly. This can go through anything in sports. When we look at replay and we slow it down to the slowest mark possible to make sure we see every little detail. But if you swap out the uniforms and it was, you know, Ronnie Hickman hitting one of George's receivers, then Ohio State fans would be saying, wait a second, when you look at that on replay, I'm not sure that that's targeting. Yeah. No, no, no. Which we acknowledge. We acknowledge I mean, mm-hmm. that, that applies to everything. That's sure. like, did the guy's, was the guy's foot down in the end zone or not? Well, it depends but, which uniform you're cheering for. So right. that yeah. applies to that. But I do think, I do think even by letter of the law, I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't know we were going to do 36 minutes on targeting. I think, Nathan, do you think this lives on? Like, do you think, what do you think? I, again, not that it changes rules, but how big of a deal do you think this is? Do you think this will be one of those plays that people talk about? Or if the rule is ever adjusted one way or another, two or three years from now or six months from now or whatever, that will, where they'll, will there be a time when we look back and say, oh, by the rules now, that would have been something else, whether it's a, you know, targeting two, whether it's, well, it's not targeting anymore, but they've changed the name. So now they're also, they're legislating crown of the helmet, but they're also legislating any high hit. It doesn't matter whether you contacted the shoulder first or not. Do you think this play will be referenced in this discussion 
or is it just Ohio State fans and coaches and players who are mad that they lost the game? I think it could be one of many plays that, that comes up in this discussion, and they've made tweaks to this rule in the past, whether, as Stephen was saying, the the, the ejection that you know players now kicked out don't have to do what Sean Wade did and, and walk <laughs> trot off the field in front of millions of people on TV. They get to stay with their team for the rest of the game. Uh, I think it's possible that you're going to see some continued refinement of the language here and some clarity. But I also wonder, though, if this is just one of those plays where it it's close enough that I, I don't know that a, a later interpretation would necessarily change it that much. I just think, I mean, they might get brought up just because whether it's this one or the Sean Wade one, they just came at key moments when millions and millions of people were watching. It's, But, I mean, whether this gets called targeting or not, Marvin Harrison's day was done either way. So it's not like the difference between the call was, oh, well, Ohio State gets his best receiver back. No, he gets the ball on the one-yard line, so that's a, the key element to this. Just like in 2019, it was – Ohio State's defense gets off the field, but instead Trevor Lawrence trots at 65 yards for a touchdown. So I think that's more of the discussion there. But the actual, you know, technique elements of this are just normal, should it have been targeting or not. I don't know if it rises to to the level that maybe there have been some others around the country that should make it part of the discussion point. Like, I wonder if people we, thought this. Are we discussing it to this level if this happens in week six? In the second no, no, no. quarter, but, but, but like, but again, that applies to everything. Like yeah. everything, the bigger the stage, the, the, point, the more yeah. important the situation, the more you talk about. It. Yeah. So, I do. I think there's a punitive part of this that is maybe subconscious in people, but part of it is like, well, if our player got hurt from the thing you did, then you should suffer a penalty for it as well, right? If it's like that, that like like eye for an eye a little bit. Like we lost our guy because of a thing your guy did that was at the at, at least borderline at least maybe targeting and we lost our guy so at least give us a first down right i do think there's almost like a there is a quality to that that again that football that justice. can't be football justice yeah. ball don't lie right like football yeah. justice that that i think works into this as well okay i think we had to do it probably not 40 minutes probably could have done it in nine but we had to do it we i think we had to do it because ryan day went there pushed prodded by the one and only Steve Hellwagon. When St- when Hellwagon's on a – when he's ready to roll, he's like, Coach, I can't – Hellwagon's like, I, just, I can't control myself. I have to ask about this. I've been trying to get answers here. I can't get answers. Can you get answers? It's like, here we go. I couldn't it's, tell it's who was more. Time. I couldn't tell who was more frustrated by the situation, Steve Hellwagon or Ryan Day in that moment. But guess what? When you're frustrated and you have passion for something, you know what yeah. you're often doing? Reflecting the fan base and yeah. bringing it to the people in charge. So Steve was acting on behalf of millions of Ohio State fans who want to, the head coach to talk about this, and he brought it. And I think maybe if he hadn't brought it to that degree, Ryan might have passed. But mm-hmm. Ryan was like, man, this guy's fired up. You know what? Let's go. I, I think you can work on that impression, by the way. You do a good uh, Tim May, good Jerry Emig, but uh, I think you can work on that Hellwagon. I've got to say, of it, it's harder. So it's I started harder. in 05. The people that were around when I got here and are still around, it's not a huge list, but Hellwagon's on it. Mm-hmm. So I have had multiple opportunities to absorb the Steve Hellwagon experience. And it's not the first time he's shown that kind of passion. But man, that is, that's why we exist because the fans can't go to the press conference. 
we are there as their conduits, as their representatives. And in that question, Steve represented Ohio State fans. So well done by him. Questions ahead, including about injuries. We'll do more next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Nathan, we're back. 614-350-3315 if you want to be a tech subscriber. But go read cleveland.com slash OSU, where we'll have stories about all these things that we learned from the coaches on Wednesday. Again, here on this Friday podcast, Nathan, we didn't talk about it on Thursday, but Ryan Day also had a list of like, oh, here's the players who aren't going to participate in spring. And it was like, he's just started running through names with like, bing, bang, bing, bang, boom. And then you were like, wait, who was the bing? There's some big time dudes who are not going to be practicing in spring. It doesn't feel like it affects their seasons or careers or Ohio State's chances of success in 2023. But Tommy Eichenberg's not going to play spring football. Who else is on that list, Nathan? The full list is Julian Fleming, Emeka Ibuka, Tommy Eichenberg, Trevion Henderson, Mitchell Melton, Court Williams, Evan Pryor, and Jacob James. And now most of those guys we knew were dealing with some kind of injury. That's Eichenberg with his one or two possibly broken hands that he played the last third of the season with. Trevion Henderson, we did not expect to play really this spring after the surgery he just had. Mitchell Melton, preseason knee injury last year. So same as Evan Pryor. Those guys would still be within the timetable where they're in the later stages of that recovery. And I didn't really expect them to be able to participate this spring. Court Williams with the bionic shoulder arm thing that he was dealing with. So really, um, the only ones that we didn't know for sure about were Jacob James and then the two receivers. But obviously Fleming has had a, a long history of, of injury things that may need some kind of maintenance. And Ibuka we knew was playing through something at times last year, too, that something was a little bit off. And I guess that had to be corrected because Ryan Day did specifically say that a lot of these were for procedures, surgeries, whatever that these guys had to have. And that's just why they're out right now. So, yeah, it's it's kind of... <laughs> Like what is that? Like a reasonably like a third of next year's first team All Big Ten team is not participating in in spring practice for Ohio State. But at the same time, it feels like uh, it feels like a lot of those players would have been on snap restrictions anyway. I I, I mean, I don't know how much Tommy Eichenberg, uh, Julian Fleming, and uh, Maka Buka, and even well maybe Travion just because just getting reps. I don't know how much they have to prove in the spring. So there is there just the, the optimistic way to view this, especially with the receivers, because Marvin Harris is probably not going to do that much either, even if he's not hurt just because he's Marvin Harrison. So this is just more opportunities for the second stringers, the new incoming freshmen to get reps. So I, I, I look at it more from that standpoint, because a lot of the guys you just named and other guys they named, played a lot of football. So they're not really in position battles outside of like maybe Jacob James would have probably been in a position battle at center, but most yeah. of those guys, they'd probably been standing around doing whatever anyway. Yeah. Just real quick, two names that aren't on that list though, that I thought was interesting. Mayan Williams, who obviously was really banged up and who may be on some kind of a pitch count this spring too, just to keep him healthy. And Kate Stover who had, uh, you know, the back spasms that knocked him out mm-hmm. of the peach bowl. So it sounds like they expect him to be healthy enough to participate this spring though. Again, as veteran as he is, Maybe not a huge involvement day to day in spring. I would like to watch the backup who's supposed to tell Tommy Eichenberg to like take a seat. <laughs> you think Tommy will just go out there drill. anyway? Uh, Tommy, Tommy, uh, Coach Knowles says uh, you should go take a break. <clears throat> Tommy, Tommy, go take a break. Get out of here, kid. Um, uh. I think uh, I th- Coach Knowles he grunted at me. I think he's doing it in. And those like, dude, he grunts at me too. I'm just scared. 
I think Eichenberg's going to show up in like just a different jersey, different number. Mm. And they'll just be this guy out there playing Mike linebacker the first day of drills. Don't be like, who is that? I think I think like Tommy Eichenberg will be in the NFL. Be like, who's that guy? Who's at practice? Who's that guy at practice who showed up like uh, Tommy Eichenberg? Just you know, the uh, the Lions were off this week, and he decided he'd need a couple extra reps, so he came back and told C.J. Hicks to take a seat. Uh, Stephen, the one name that I do think I like you don't want on that list is Julian Fleming because he's been here a long time, but I'm not so, so sure that Julian Fleming is repped to the max in a way that like, hey, I'd like to see Julian Fleming out there with the new quarterback. You know, the, like we all anybody wants is maximum Julian Fleming, and he had a good year last year. But it's just, again, it's like it's another thing. And it's not, I'm sure Julian Fleming will be top, will be fine for the summer, fine for August practice. But I actually do think even in year four, Julian Fleming maybe could have used some spring reps with these two new QBs. I, I could see that. That's probably the best way to look at it, especially with him. Like you mentioned, his injury history. Anytime that he's on a list that has to do with injuries, even if it's just precautionary because of that injury history, you see him on a list like this and your ears perk up a little bit. Okay, what's wrong now? Unfortunately, and you hate that you have to think about it like that, but you're, he's reached that point now. When you are an injury-prone player, it does kind of turn into, okay, what, what is it this week? What took a, you know, a left this week? But maybe that's, that's a correct way to look for it because of the three starters, Ameka had 1,000 yards. He's good. Marvin had 1,000 yards. He's good. Plus the guy who might end up winning the job, he's been playing with him since the eighth grade. So the chemistry is not off there that's probably fair that if, if anybody needs reps, it's of the three, it's probably Julian Fleming, especially since he was in and out of spring last year too. And the year before that. All right, let's talk about running backs. Tony Alford in the running back room had a really interesting year. Listening to some of the stuff Tony said on Wednesday, if you should try to get a handle on the room. And this is, these are two sort of bottom of the depth chart things at the moment that I found interesting. One, Nathan is the idea that chip train a running back. Like he's definitely in the room and Xavier Johnson is not Xavier Johnson's in the receiver room, but Tony Alford and Evan Pryor, as you said, Nathan, who had the preseason injury last year is still out for spring. Somebody asked Tony Alford, whether Evan Pryor could maybe do some of the things that Xavier Johnson did for them at running back last year. And Tony was like, yeah, no, that's that, that actually makes a lot of sense. So it, at, at the bottom of the depth chart, Nathan, like, is this the right spot for Chip Trainum? We don't have to do 40 minutes on which position Chip Trainum should play, but he was a running back at Arizona State. He came to Ohio State to be a linebacker, and now he's a running back. And they have five guys in there because it's Trevion Henderson, Mayan Williams, Evan Pryor, Dallin Hayden, and Chip Trainum. So we'll get into a deeper discussion about like how they might split up carries. Is this the right spot for this guy, or is he going to get caught in between? It's a weird question because I think on – or maybe the maybe it's not a weird question, but the answer I'm giving might be weird because I think it might be one of those things where it makes the most sense for the spring for him to be at running back because you're down Trevor Henderson, you're down Evan Pryor. They didn't mention anything about TC Caffey today, who was a walk on, who was getting reps last year, but he had a big injury, so I don't know what his status is for the spring. So you're getting low on bodies. They actually are going to be kind of low on running back bodies for the spring, and you want to rep through things and and be able to have some balance and you want to have enough running backs to do things in the spring game too i suppose eventually um does it make the most sense if everybody else is healthy for the fall uh i don't know but i actually think that right now his biggest value to this roster is 
it's two things. It's what he can be as a special teams player in various facets, and it's the versatility. So, I mean, does anybody think that if they had a crisis at linebacker and everybody else was healthy at running back, that he wouldn't just move over back to that room? Like, yeah, he's already done it once. I, I could see uh, it happening again if they needed it to happen. I think this is the best place for him um, for the rest of his career. Because, I mean, they want five running scholarship running backs. So I understand it's, it sounds like a big number, but that's what they want. And him, he gives it to them, especially since they didn't get a recruit in the 2023 cycle. So they needed to find some guy somewhere. Uh, so from that standpoint, yeah, the number once everybody's healthy, it still makes sense to have him in the room. But also, I mean, I think this past year showed you that the fifth best running back in the room could end up being the main guy against Michigan if things go completely awry the way they did this past year. Now, you can't bank on that, but also you can't bank on Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams making it through a season at this point because this is two straight years with both of them have dealt with some stuff that has kept them out of games at times. It's, and you're not really sure when you're getting Evan Pryor back. And so it can't just be Dallin Hayden as the only fully healthy running back in there. So from that, from just a running back standpoint, it makes sense. But also, they're only playing two linebackers consistently, sometimes a third, depending on what the personnel is. But only two linebackers, and they have more linebackers than they know what to do with right now. And that's even with, you know, Paulier, Neo, Tote, and Taraja Mitchell leaving. You've still got a bunch of young guys there. So – from his standpoint, when you think about what's – if I were to end up on the field, where is it more likely at? Probably running back based on the injuries because that linebacker, C.J. Hicks is coming, Reed Carrico and Gabe Powers are still behind him, and then wherever Mitchell Melton is in that, whether he's a defensive end or he's a linebacker, Jack, whatever. But it just seems like, as weird as it is, the clearer path to the field for him is that running back. I want to build on that real quick, too, that Tranum has another year of eligibility next year. So it's not just about what's best for this year. It's if Mayan Williams and Trevin Henderson are both gone after this year, mm-hmm. and just those two, even if those are the only two who are gone next year, well, now you still need him, Tranum, as part of a still robust running back room next year, more than you need him this year. And we keep talking about this in terms of, well, they could get the um, – the start of the season with five healthy running backs, but that's if there's no other attrition here. And if you're number five in this room coming out of the spring, maybe you don't stick around to the start of the season. I know we don't like to speculate individually about those sort of transfer things, but that's a reality to keep in mind here that it, it, you have to be planning ahead for some of those, those uh, possibilities. So I saved, we didn't get to this on the latest rapid fire. This was the last question I had and we didn't get to it. And I kind of saved it and I think it worked out well. This was from Andrew and Hilliard. Do you think there is a scenario where we retain all of our running backs this upcoming season? The room seems deep, and I could see a starting role for Evan Pryor or Dallin Hayden at several other schools. I hope they all stick around because a deep room this year may look thin next year. So he's saying some of the stuff you're saying, Nathan. There's now, and then there's later. I I don't think anybody on staff does this better than Tony Alford. So he got a Dallin Hayden. I think this is specific to Dallin Hayden because Evan Pryor is still hurt. Mm-hmm. And the point that you made, Nathan, about like, well, they need Chip Tran- Chip Tran's three now because Evan Pryor and Trevion Henderson aren't taking part in spring. And like, you need to go three deep so you can run drills. So like, that's actually a part of it too. That makes a lot of sense. But Dallin Hayden really is the guy here at question, right? Now, the, the thing that's weird is sometimes you think guys might leave because they didn't play. I think the people maybe here think Dallin Hayden would potentially leave because he did play. Because if he was just the fifth or sixth running back in the room or no better than the fourth because he's a true freshman and nobody expected him to play. I don't know that anybody would be like, Oh man, Dallin Hayden might get up out of here, but it's like, Oh, 
They needed him, and he ran for 100 yards against Maryland and looked pretty good. And now, if everybody gets healthy, he's going to move down the chart. You asked Tony Alford. Tony, it's funny. I think we almost don't. We love to talk to Tony Alford. I think we almost don't need to talk to Tony Alford because we all know what he's going to say. Bill Landis even came over and was like, I know every spring we ask you how you're going to divide the carries. And Tony Alford is like, and you know what I'm going to say. And Landis is like, I know that you know, I know, we all know what you're going to say, but I'm going to try to ask it a different way. But the thing about Dallin Hayden, you asked Tony Alford about, hey, Dallin Hayden, he's like, I know there's this social media noise out there and, you know, people see that, but I was just talking to Dallin yesterday. So he's saying this on Wednesday. So he and Dallin Hayden sat down on Tuesday to talk about all this stuff. And Tony's like, you know, Aaron and Latoya, they're going to be on top of this. They're going to know exactly what the situation is. And nobody, and it's not even name dropping, but I feel like sometimes if like, if a player is in Tony Alford's room and he's like, yeah, I'm best friends with their parents. What, what do you mean? Why wouldn't yeah. I be best friends with their parents? Like I'm a coach. That's what you're supposed to do. So Aaron and Latoya Hayden, Aaron Hayden played college football. These are, again, at it's Tennessee. not that families are, families are smarter than one another is just that some are more in the world, right? And some are more aware of just how stuff works because you've lived in football your whole life. If you were an accountant or whatever, or a teacher, then you don't know how this works, right? And so Aaron and Latoya Hayden are like on it. They know what is up. They're not surprised by stuff. They they are aware of everything. And that, I think Tony Alford makes that into a good thing. I do. I still think there's a story out there eventually of it's, oh, it's not like Ohio State's the only place, but I do just feel like Ohio State does pretty well with football families, like the families that really know what's up. I think more often than not, because sometimes you think like, oh, well, those families, they have a they know, OK, you got to do this and this and this to stay on track so you can get to the league or whatever. It's like I feel like, you know, like Teron Vincent, Troy Vincent, again, I still think remains a good example there. So like Tony Alford's. Steven, it just felt like he was like, if anybody was like, hey, and he just turns the sprinklers on. And it's like, it's all good. We're just watering the grass. Like, hey, don't, you might get wet. If you want to stand on my lawn and ask me questions about whether Dallin Hayden's going to leave, the sprinklers are on. You can stand there in the rain if you want, but you're going to get wet. But I'm going to sit on my porch and drink an Arnold Palmer and look at out the world and have a nice day. You want to stand in the sprinklers and ask if the freshman running back's going to transfer? Go ahead. Waste your breath. You know what the answer is. Aaron and Latoya and I got this. We're good. Like that vibe, you know, Tony is just kind of a, he's just a, he's just a little bit of a different kind of dude. Like he will just sit. He, Tony Alford, I think every kind of, and I did sit on his porch with him. He's a porch guy. I feel like every conversation that we have with Tony Alford should be on his porch. You know, like, mm. like almost like a little bit of like, I'm too old for this stuff. Like, let's just talk. <laughs> what are we doing? Mm-hmm. It's just life and football, man. Let's talk. And it's like, Tony, I just had a really quick question about on third and two. How do you read the whole? He's like, let me get you a lemonade. Let's <laughs> relax and have a discussion about this. It's like, Tony, I don't really have time for lemonade. He's like, how many ice cubes do you want in your lemonade? Tony, I just <laughs> I want to talk about the blocking scheme on that play. And Tony Alford wants to, but it's great. It's great. So Steven. It doesn't mean that running backs will never transfer, but Tony Alford just turned on the sprinklers. And if anybody out there is worried, like, oh, are they going to lose a guy? I don't know. He sure doesn't seem like it is a worry or a possibility at all. And I also do think realistically the idea that, well, he's going to be one of the top three guys in spring. He's getting reps in spring. Also maybe helps tamp that down a little bit. But what do you think, Stephen, of that whole Dallin Hayden conversation? Communication is key. 
And I think I love that you mentioned the football families because because they know what they're doing. They know when they're being BSed. And Tony Alford is not really a BSer. In fact, sometimes to his fault, he's not a BSer. So uh, he, I, I wasn't there when Tony Alford actually said that. I went back and listened. But I also had a conversation with Tony Alford afterward, just one-on-one, me and him. As long as things are being communicated, nobody's upset. Now, we do live in a new world where schools are trying to poach, NIL, all this stuff exists. So sometimes just being a stand-up human being might not be enough in a world that doesn't necessarily always reward the stand-up human being. But the vibe I got from him based off how he was talking when he was sitting down and then after I was talking to him, because he said, as long as you're communicating, no one can be upset because things are going the way you told them they would go. And sometimes they go better than that. But he, Dallin Hayden knew he probably wasn't going to play this much his freshman year unless that unless the world fell apart the way it did last year and he took advantage of it. It's the same thing now here where it's, Dallin, we're down two running backs that were supposed to be a part of our top three. So you're going to get as many reps as possible because you're second in line most of the time behind mine. So here's even more of an opportunity for you to showcase your skills. I can promise you that. I can't promise you anything more than that because that would be irresponsible. So as long as that's happening, there's really no reason for Dallin Hayden to be upset. Now, if that changes and Tony Alford's word is no longer bond, then that's a different conversation. But for now, Dallin Hayden's coming into the spring expecting to be second in line and get as many reps as possible, maybe even more reps because Mayan Williams is older and probably doesn't need every rep imaginable. So we might, if we could chart out reps by the end of the spring, if you told me Dallin Hayden had 50 more reps than any other running back, that wouldn't shock me because he's healthy and he's young and he can take it. So, Nathan, we had, I think, a pretty extensive conversation on a previous pod. I lose track of how we think they might split up running back carries this year, maybe more like the Georgia model. I know you said, you know, you've written about that in the past. So I don't think we need to cover all that ground again. But I do think it's just a little bit of an interesting scenario where in the end, I think most people, including the people in the Ohio State building, would agree that like the production from the running back room last year wasn't what you wanted it to be. But it's almost entirely because of injury. And so they wound up putting a lot of guys in situations that they wouldn't normally be in. And now the result is you have a lot of guys with experience that you wouldn't normally expect. So, like, what do you think? I don't want to ask what the mood in the room is, because the mood is Tony Alfred's passing out lemonade and talking about life with his five guys, and it's all good. What should the expectations be for the running backs this year, Nathan? Like, what do they need? There's a part of me that's like, man. The running backs need a big year this year. I think I think for the offense to function and for the team to be as, as good as it can be, I think they need a better run game than a year ago. I don't, of course, obviously. But also, like, it's kind of not their fault. So it's not like, oh, ho, ho, you guys better step it up. It's like, hey, 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 you guys better not get hurt so much. It's like, how do you control that? So I, I don't know. Is the running back room in a weird spot a little bit, Nathan, that I do? I mean, I do think Ohio State needs to run the ball better in 2023 but they have reasonable excuses for why they didn't run it better in 2022. And the result is they're pretty darn deep for 2023, but we maybe don't exactly know what the top of the depth chart and the pecking order is going to be. Is this, we always talk about from strength and weakness. Where is the running back room in your mind for this season on the strength and weakness chart? 
Well, I mean, strength in numbers, and I think strength in competitiveness and, and just the roster competitiveness that has to happen in that room right now, because even though there's established guys, I mean, think of how much personally each of these five guys has to prove. And I know two of them are out this spring, but just between now and September 2nd, you know, Trevion Henderson needing to prove that last year was a all about the injuries and that when healthy, he can come out and be the next step of what he showed as a freshman. And Mayan Williams probably wanting to say, well, if I had just been able to been healthy all year, what I might have been first team all Big Ten. Like I was, he was having a fantastic year. That what he was averaging per carry, highly productive when they had him in there. And can he stay healthy and replicate that for an entire season? And Dallin Hayden saying like, hey, I know it was the second half against IU in Maryland, but I'm legit. Like I, if you put me in in the first string, I can I can do things against people and chip train him needing to find a home at some point as much as i said his versatility helps yeah i'm sure he probably wants to play in the nfl someday and get his shot now where's that gonna happen where can he fit in and establish himself and then obviously evan Pryor, who's been a little bit out of sight out of mind you know when does he get to get back on the field and show build off of what he was starting to show last spring and and getting people excited so there's a lot of personal motivation in that room by guys who in any other program and with any other timeline isn't that five guys who could be starting for power five teams and they're all going to be in Ohio State's running back room this fall assuming they all make it to there so I, it, it just seems like that could be a strength as long as Tony Alford is that's part of why these guys get paid but like that's a tough thing to manage sometimes egos and expectations and 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 he's got to find a way to make that all fit together not just for this year but as I said two of those guys I think are almost Mike Williams is definitely gone. Trevin Henderson, if he hits, would make a lot of sense to leave. So that now pushes everybody up one spot next year. And that's another thing for these guys to keep in their mind is come here, be part of another national championship pursuit, and maybe you're the guy in the spotlight next year. I think so much is linked to Trey's health because it all starts with him. It's The health thing really impacted him this past year, not just in the – you know, reading holes, stuff. Offer was talking to me about the one thing, regardless of injury or not, the one place he would like to see Trey really get better is his patience and not just be, I need to go get the big play now. And I said, so JK 2018, he was like, yeah, pretty much JK 2018. And it wasn't because he knew he was coming off the field. It's just, I mean, this dude averaged like 11 yards per carry for most uh, the first time he ever was a running back. And so it was very easy until it wasn't very easy for him. And I think that the injury was so much about, I need to get a, a big play, but also I'm not sure how much I can get out of this foot today before it's going to like hurt so much that I can't even walk anymore. So let me maximize myself in these three, four, five, six, seven carries before the pain kicks in. And there were a lot of games like that where, where you, if we, if you go back and watch, he'd get those first couple of carries and it didn't look right. And we're going, why isn't he reading the hole right? It's because he's trying to be Travion Henderson before his foot doesn't even let him be 50% of Travion Henderson. And so it's, it's just little stuff like that that maybe you don't think about during the season. We're not completely sure what the injury is. You just know this week he's in a boot and the next week he's not. So I, I just think so much starts with, can that guy get healthy and can you keep him healthy in November so he's not thinking that way? So he can show whatever progression he's made over a season because he's not worried about, I only can play hard for five plays before my foot's going to start hurting. So how about I try to go get 150 yards and four touchdowns and five carries? It is interesting that it happened again. 
Now, there was an injury component here, but we had another Ohio State running back who had a great freshman year mm-hmm. who then had a sophomore slump. And J.K.'s was in large part because he was split in time, and Travion's was in large part because of injury. But, the, but they weren't as good. They weren't as productive in year two as they were in year one. And so then, like, you didn't want to put – I think we had conversations like, it's not fair. We're not going to put that on Travion. Like, we talked about the J.K. Dobbins stuff a lot, but it's like, well, we don't think it's going to happen. It's like, oh, no. We, we know why, but also it did happen. And then what happened with J.K.? J.K. ran 2,000 yards in year three. So now this is on Trivion. I do think of all the stuff, I think this is a big year for Tony and Trivion together because you saw what Donovan Edwards did. Ohio State could have had Donovan Edwards. They took Trivion Henderson instead. As with most of his guys, Tony Alford and Trivion Henderson have a tight relationship. We know what the upside of Trivion Henderson can be. I think Trivion has a little bit of the C.J. Stroud stuff that we talked about where I think he hears the noise and I think it affects him. Listen, Billy Price heard the noise and it affected him. Like I don't, it's not like a select few guys who hear this, but some guys are more open about it. And you do not, you don't have to dig far to understand that. Like that Travion was frustrated and a little ticked off and like the way the whole thing went. I mean, his social media account is mostly a response to every tweet you've ever seen about Trevion Henderson. So this is a big year. So that for so for them. But the good thing is like okay, if that doesn't work to max capacity, well, Mayan Williams, Dallin Hayden, Evan Pryor, Trip Trainer. You have other alternatives, but I think in everybody's ideal world, Trevion Henderson's up first and has a great year and then that depth keeps him fresh, keeps him good for the fourth quarter, keeps him good for November and the playoff and all of those things and Stephen, as you said, that was the the selling point when Evan Pryor and Trevion Henderson were recruited here together. Trevion doesn't need it necessarily 25 times a game. He's not going to have the workload that J.K. Dobbins did in 2019. I think we know that for sure. But could he have the dynamism, the level of production when he does have the ball? That's what everybody wants. So I do think this is a this is a really big moment in the career of Tony Alford at Ohio State and obviously in the career of Trevion Henderson. And what those two guys together can get after, I think, is, again, on the list of most interesting things to watch for Ohio State in 2023. It's like the reemergence of a healthy Trevion Henderson and what it means to the Ohio State offense is very, very high on that list, I think, for a lot of people. So we'll take a quick break, and then we will come back and talk about Keenan Bailey a little bit before we go. Next on Buckeye Talk. All right, so we'll wrap up with a new tight ends coach. He's Keenan Bailey. He's 27 years old. He and his wife are expecting their first child. So it's like a big, exciting time in the in the life of, of Keenan Bailey. And we touched on this a little bit on the Thursday pod about like Ryan Day is like, why can't I promote from within? Why do you have, why does a guy have to leave? Like Nathan, they had this guy teed up. This guy, I think more than Parker Fleming, more than Corey Dennis. They knew, I think they knew they wanted to hire Keenan Bailey and that this was going to be coming. And, and I think there probably are a variety of ways it could have fit. I think if Brian Hartline would have left, I think Keenan Bailey probably would have been the receivers coach. Instead, it's Kevin Wilson who leaves. I don't think he could have been an offensive line coach, but if Parker Fleming left, they might have made him the special teams coach. I don't know. He pro- he maybe could have been the running backs coach if Tony Alford had left to be a head coach somewhere. Like I think Ryan Day had it in his head for a while that Keenan Bailey was going to be a full-time guy here. And I just talked to Keenan a little bit. The one thing he said was that in his role before, and I think he said he's been here six years, he felt like his job was to look around corners 
and anticipate Ryan Day's needs or whatever assistant he was working for. Like he worked with Brian Hartline a lot. He, he almost said like he was he's like Dwight Schrute. He didn't say yeah. I was the assistant to the regional manager, but he said like I was the assistant to the assistant. So being that he was talking about like, hey, sometimes if if someone's going to go give a speech at a clinic at a high school, Keenan Bailey, he's like the body man. He would like be like, okay, here's the head coach. Here's his background. Eight years ago, they had a player who came to Ohio State. Like, here's his golf handicap. This is the kind of Mexican food he likes to eat. Like, Keenan Bailey would, like, make sure that whether it was Ryan Day or Brian Hartline, whomever, would would go off and, like, have a great visit with that place. Like, that's the kind of thing that he wanted to do. Looking around corners. I want to clear the path. I want to find the problems before it gets to my guy. And now he just gets to be a football coach. (laughs) And, like, you know, now he just gets to coach and recruit. And this guy... You can see, because he did, and Stephen, you've talked about this a lot, like when guys get on campus, he could recruit. But he said, like, I felt like I was trapped in the woodies. Like he's held hostage. Like you can't go out and recruit. So as soon as Kevin Wilson left, Keenan Bailey, I know he did it the one day. He was like, (laughs) I'm in South Carolina. Should I get Zaxby's for lunch? And it's like, that's what I would be like if I was recruiting. I feel, and Keenan Bailey went to Mizzou to, to be a journalism major Keenan Bailey's alternate path is that he's on Buckeye Talk. And he's having like a very hardcore chicken finger conversation on this podcast. And then like Stephen Means is the tight ends coach at Ohio State. Like there are, these are the alternate paths. I'll take like if that. We, we, we could do a freaky Friday of Keenan Bailey and Stephen Means. And we're like, hey, Stephen Means, what's it like to be, uh, tell us about Jelani Thurman. No. So like we're, that's, that's out there. But Nathan, this guy is so – he's so excited. He's so excited. His oh. life just started. He's been grinding for six years. And so as much as a – for the record, I do think you should keep open to outside hires. You should hire the best guy for the job. But of all three guys that they hired internally, I like the Keenan Bailey hire the best. And this guy is fired up to do it, Nathan. And I know you have a great feature story coming on him. Yeah, and he's been grinding longer than six years. He's got a really interesting story the more I peel it back. And I've been trying to go beyond what – we've known about him as far as him coming here as an intern and being here and having these beside the scenes role, because I think that's been written about a lot. But my real thought was like, how did this guy really get going in this? Where did the momentum build for this? And uh, I won't go into all the details, but when he was in middle school, his parents were are Notre Dame alums. So he would go to camps at Notre Dame when he was in middle school, where he met a running backs coach named Tony Alford. Tony Alford. He lived in Florida, so he goes back down to Florida. But every time these coaches would come through um, his his high school, um, he would like he would seek out Alfred, and like they kind of kept in contact over the years. Um, he had decided, like you said, was going to go to Mizzou to study journalism. The Mizzou assistant coach comes through one day, Josh Henson, who's now the uh, offensive coordinator at USC, comes through and. Bailey's just like starts talking him up and he's standing out of practice and like telling him about all the players and like kind of impressing him a little bit. So he says, Hey, can I get a job with you when I come to Mizzou next year? So that's how he becomes a student assistant at Mizzou leaves there after one year to, to go back to Notre Dame, reaches out to Tony Alford, gets a job there in recruiting. And then three years later, Tony Alford leaves to come to Ohio state. And he's like, Hey, I want you to come with me. I, I want to get you a job down here. 
So Keenan Bailey takes 24 credit hours in one semester so he can finish his degree and come down and be an intern at the uh, with with Meyer and and Tony Alford at, to start his tenure at Ohio State. And like you said, Doug, like this has been a guy. So he didn't he played two years of high school football and then got hurt, but also said, yeah, I wasn't good enough. Like I wasn't going to go play college. So everybody else on this staff, including Parker Fleming, I think everybody else on this staff was a player at some level of high school or college football and like worked their way up. Some of these guys were power five players and this is not his background. And you to do that and, and gain respect in those rooms, you have to do two things. Number one, I think you have to be super smart and really get the game, which he obviously does. That's why he's been a trusted guy in that offensive room for a while. But number two, you've got to just work harder than everybody else. You've got to have a personality that like connects with people. Like, so he really had to prove himself at many, many, many stages to be someone that Ohio state uh, trusted the way that it has. And he's had opportunities to leave. They kept him in that room for a reason. They kept finding ways and reasons to keep him here. And kind of probably with this promise that your time is coming, we want you here. Um, and now he gets to be a position coach and it's, it's not, um, what he thought he was going to be departing to do when he was, you know, 18 years old, but it's like a decade later uh, or more. And now he's finally getting the opportunity to get this going. And everybody on that staff is like, listen, like give it another like 10, 15 years. And he's going to be a major thing in college football. I played this so wrong. Just before you start talking, Steven, I just, for yeah. the people who are listening on the podcast and not watching on YouTube in the course of that, Soliloquy by Nathan Baird. Steven means put on his should I become a coach face. <laughs> Steven means had a this is your life moment on that. Is it too late for me? Can I make a career switch? Should I talk to Tony Alford mm-hmm. about whether he has a grad assistant spot? That you could see it happen. And there have been plenty of journalists, like the guy who picked Ricky Rubio and uh, that guy from Syracuse ahead of Steph Curry as the GM of the Minnesota Timberwolves, Johnny Flynn. Mm-hmm. He was a journalism guy. Then became the GM of the T- Minnesota Timberwolves and made one of the most catastrophic draft choices in NBA history. So that could be on the table for you as well, Stephen. Like you could be a, a chance to do that as an NBA GM. Are we? Is that? Are you? Would you like to be thinking? Is this your last Buckeye talk, Stephen? Because on Monday you will be an Ohio State grad assistant. To be completely honest with you, that's not a bad story, and I'm about the same age as a lot of those grad assistants. So I know. I'm going to text Jerry. I got a today. spot. This is actually not a bad idea <laughs> no, for a story. Hey, Jerry's <laughs> not getting you the job. Text no, no, Tony. No, no. I don't, yeah, Tony I don't, is the guy. Yeah. I don't think that's a bad idea of like, hey, here's the life of a grad assistant to, to like have a story like that. So that's interesting. But, yes, I was more thinking – so Keenan Bailey and I are around the same age, which means we were in college around the same time. I played this wrong. I should have gone to Ohio State, ran into Stan Drayton, and started my life towards becoming Ohio State's next tight ends coach. And instead, both of us went into colleges Look at as, journalism, as journalism instead, majors. I actually this is followed literally through. nothing. Yeah, I it's followed a podcast. Through. Everybody follow, has a podcast. I followed through on my journalism major. He did not. He failed at his journalism career, and he's making a lot more money than I am now. Hmm. Well, actually, that might not be true. Then the one thing is about grad students, I don't think they make that is true. Okay, yeah, no, no, one as, thing that, that as Keenan, of today, as of today, yeah, <laughs> so signing his new Keenan, contract. <laughs> Keenan Bailey did say 
uh, Nathan, like the idea of sometimes people think, like, well, you're a grad assistant or whatever, like you get coffee. And he was like, that's maybe back in the day, but like yeah. he was talking about, like, I want to add value. I want to mm-hmm. do things, right? And we have, we've talked a yeah. couple times about like the charting he and Ryan Day did together. I think I think Keenan Bailey was very aware of adding value, mm-hmm. which puts you in a position like this. When you're an intern, when he first got there as an intern, I, it was more like that. I think you have a lot more grunt work to do. But he, everybody I've talked to, people, yeah, like, like when you're still a college student, yeah, like you yeah. said, yeah, the, you know, whether it was Josh Henson who I mentioned before, whether it was uh, the people I talked to, several people he worked with at Notre Dame. Other than Tony Offord, like everybody says that this was a guy that you would give him a job. And it's like the scene in Moneyball where Brad Pitt gives Jonah Hill, uh, tells him, hey, I need you to do workups on like 10 players. And, and Jonah Hill does like 40 or whatever it is. Like that's that was Keenan Bailey. Like you would give him a job and he would do it like three or four times as much. And he was a guy that would stay late and, and get there first. And again, just a, a grinder. This isn't a guy, you know, there's been a lot of talk in college football this is probably a tangent we don't want to go on today uh, after the Iowa news yesterday, but a lot of talk about like nepotism and which people deserve mm. jobs and, and how you, how you earn your way up the ladder. But this guy has been working his butt off for a long time to get to where he is right now and demonstrating value. Speaking, in a real of, nep- way. Speaking of nepotism, I, I think there, as much as this is going to pain Doug to hear, I think the, the added value part, when you are in that GAQC role, there are some Corey Dennis elements here. Now, how they got here, totally different, obviously. Corey Dennis is the son-in-law of Urban Meyer. But what they did once they were in the positions here, very similar. Because you go back to 2018 when Ryan Day is also the acting head coach, who is Dwayne Haskins highlighting of why a lot of of why he was able to stay on track? Corey Dennis. Who is Justin Fields highlighting when him and Mike Yurcich are still trying to get to know each other while also get to know the playbook? Corey Dennis, as much as the, the, the why he was here in the first place was nepotism, how Corey Dennis ended up in this role, he did start to show his value once he was in that position. Keenan Bailey, very much the same way. Once he was in these positions, it's, you talk, I, I've mentioned it, you talk to these recruits, they'll tell you as much as it is, yeah, Brian Hardline's awesome. Keenan Bailey is playing just as big of a role with these guys. You're starting to see it with the tight ends, uh, guys behind the scenes. You know, Cade Stover will tell you, yo, when I was really trying to learn how to be a better pass catcher as a tight end, it was Keenan Bailey out here working with me every day. Lathan Ransom, when he was coming back from injury over the summer and I would see him out there, it would be Keenan Bailey working with him. And so it's kind of that same concept of these guys that don't necessarily get center stage because they can't, but because they're not official assistant coaches, there's no like rules set in place for how much they can work with a guy. So they end up being the guy who ends up getting doing most of the work with these players. And so now for both of those guys, it's paid off with a full-time assistant coaching job. And when you add value, people don't forget that. Yeah. Um, I've heard stories of, you know, when Brian Ferentz was in high school, he'd shovel the driveway, you know, and you add value that way. And then 20 years later, your dad refuses to fire you. Because listen, I'm telling you what, man, it'd be cold out there. Those Iowa City winners, nobody wants to be shoveling the driveway. Brian would get up before school, 6.30 in the morning, from edge to edge. He'd do the thing where you, sh- you you flip the shovel over, and then you use it like as a pick to make sure you get the ice off. You're not just doing the snow. You're getting off the ice underneath. Mama Ferentz, she didn't slip in the driveway. That's value added. That's why it's okay that Iowa has 178th ranked offense in the country, and Brian Ferentz is going to keep his job next year. People don't forget. 
I think Cade Stover staying is a big deal for Keenan Bailey. He was talking about that, like with Jelani Thurman coming in, and he was saying, like, hey, I don't have to dig up film of Jeff Hireman and Nick Vanette and Jeremy Ruckert and say, like, hey, Jelani Thurman, like, this is how to play tight end at Ohio State. He said, I just point at Cade Stover and say, do that. And he said, like, Jelani Thurman, like, you know, you come in and you're, you attach yourself to the older guys and you do your thing. I do think, Nathan, you know, it would have been great for everybody at Ohio State if C.J. Stroud would have stayed. Cade Stover staying is a big deal. And I do think that transition, I thought it was interesting, Keenan Belly was talking about, he, like, they knew this was coming. Kevin Wilson stayed through bowl practice and they knew Keenan Bailey was going to take over. So like Keenan Bailey just looks like we're following Kevin Wilson around, make sure he had every handle on coaching tight ends. And he said like, he calls Kevin Wilson now, like Kevin Wilson's the head coach at Tulsa, Kevin Wilson. I still follow Kevin Wilson on Twitter. He's getting on social media. Every time Tulsa offers anybody, Kevin Wilson's retweeting it, but Keenan Bailey will call him up and ask him a question about being the tight ends coach at Ohio state, which I thought was cool that like Kevin Wilson picks up the phone for that kind of thing. So Keenan Bailey's ready for this, but I think Kate having Kate Stover in that room, Nathan, if, if it was like, Hey, new tight ends coach, have figure this out. Like, I don't know. Like I'm, none of these guys are G Scott's played a little bit. Nobody else has really played. Good luck. Make sure we have a tight end in the fall. Instead. It's like, ah. Eh, Cade Stover, just do more of that and everybody else get in line behind Cade Stover and do what he does. It's kind of a nice thing for a first-year position coach. I mean, other than C.J. Stroud, there was really no other returnee, a guy making the decision to stay, that solves a room by itself, except for Cade Stover. Like, it just solves the room. Like, even if Royer and Scott or whoever else don't step up and become something bigger this year, you still got Cade Stover. You still got a guy who's got you know, reasonably expected to be an all Big Ten caliber player this year. Um, maybe could could end up being one of the best, if not the best, big uh, tight ends in the Big Ten. And, you know, I wouldn't, you know, even Tommy Eichenberg, they've got enough depth at linebacker that they probably would have figured something out. Or, um, you know, Lathan Ransom coming back. It helps, but does it solve the whole safety situation no but like just Cade Stover coming back means you've got a whole position and a position that has some importance in this offense regardless of how much they throw to it that good hands now I think it gives you a complete tight end especially for what Keenan Bailey's skill set is right now he's probably better at developing the receiving part of the tight end than the blocking part of the tight end just like Kevin Wilson was probably better at developing the blocking part of the tight end than the receiving tight end just because of what their skill sets are and what they've been doing over the past couple years so having a guy who has already established himself from the blocking tight end part it's a little different if you're bringing back Kate uh, Joe Royer and G Scott regardless of how many snaps they played G. Scott is a converted wide receiver, and Joe Royer played wide receiver all up until he got here. So you're also – it's a guy who's going to be learning on the job, which is the which is the payoff when you do hire from within like this. Sometimes you have guys learning on the job. So he's going to have – the challenge with him is developing Joe Royer and G. Scott's blocking ability just as much as their receiving ability. But having a guy at the top of your totem pole that you don't have to worry about because he can already do both – it all it, it that's a breath of fresh air, but it also makes me think that maybe Cage Dover has forty catches this year. All right, let's wrap it up there, Nathan. That Keenan Bailey story next couple weeks probably right. People can look for that at cleveland.com slash osu. I am optimistic that it will be up early next week. Okay, we'll make sure you guys are aware of that when it happens. Nathan's been working on that one for a while. In the meantime, a bunch of other stuff at cleveland.com slash OSU. We invite you uh, to check that out every day. Bookmark it if you, if you haven't. There's good stuff there. The College Football Survivor Show, uh, Shahan and I talked about. It's kind of something that we had done here. It's almost like playing off what we had done 
with the when we said Ohio State might be the greatest team of all time in 2023, Shahan and I looked at like 2025 based off these recruiting classes and where programs are now and converting recruiting talent into success. Who do we expect to be around in 2025? We went through all the best recruiting classes this year. We obviously talked about Ohio State and that did that on the latest college football survivor show. Try the text at 614-350-3315 and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any Buckeye talks for now. For Nathan Baird and Stephen Means, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>